Welcome back to the ninth episode of Witnesses to History. My name is Keegan Gingrich, and today we will be looking at my final installment in the series. Uh, however, it's going to continue on under new leadership. I think I've said that a couple times, and then I've had some new ideas for new episodes, and they've just kept coming, so you get to hear me one last time. Today's episode will be a bit different than others in this series, as the book itself is quite different than those we've looked at previously. Our excerpts come from the book titled Patton's Gap, Mustangs Over Normandy, written by Major General Richard Romer. Richard Romer was born on January 24th, 1924 in Hamilton, Ontario, and has been referred to as one of Canada's most colorful figures of the past half century. After completing high school and working at Fleet Aerospace for a short period of time, Mr. Romer joined the Royal Canadian Air Force on his 18th birthday on January 24th, 1942. It should be noted that Richard Romer is a best-selling author of over 25 books, including his novels Ultimatum and Separation, published in the 1970s. Patton's Gap, on the other hand, was written in 1981 and published in the same year, and it's just one of Romer's many writings on the Second World War. However, it's an interesting read, unlike many of the books we've looked at in this series. While the book is indeed a very useful account of the daily duties of reconnaissance pilots in the Second World War, it simultaneously weaves the historical records of the war as well as Romer's very strong opinions about where certain military leaders made crucial mistakes throughout the war, and no more strongly than in North Normandy and the Filet Gap. I considered myself so really lucky, you know. And many, many were doing their job, doing it for, for their country. The opportunity was there. I took it. You just couldn't do it all on your own. If we're not around to tell them, how are they going to know? For this episode, I will be reading a few pages on Romer's experiences in the war. I'm most interested here in pulling out the actual experiences of a reconnaissance pilot during the war rather than focusing on his critiques as much as they're found rife throughout the book and uh, I would probably be here a while if I wanted to get through all of them. If you are interested in knowing more about Romer's own opinions, experiences, and his versions of the historical record, I highly recommend checking out the book, as there would be too much information for me to cover in a single episode. What we are going to do today, however, is start with Mr. Romer's description of the aircraft that he was flying, the Mustang. This is from pages 18 to 21 in the book. 430 Squadron was equipped with 12 Mustang 1 aircraft. The original model of the famous fighting machine, the Mustang 4 or P-51D, which the Americans eventually developed into the long-range escort for their flying fortress bombers that smashed Germany by day. Built by North American Aviation of California, our Mustang 1s cruised at about 260 miles per hour. They were equipped with an Allison engine with a cropped blower, that is, the engine's supercharger was rendered inoperative, with the result that we had difficulty in operating above 10,000 feet. Moreover, the aircraft was large and heavy, making it impossible for us to turn inside a Messerschmitt 109 or a Focke-Wulf 190 in a dogfight. The rule for the Mustang 1 was, if bounced by an enemy fighter, do not attempt to dogfight, because the German is bound to win. Instead, Roll over on your back and dive with your engine at maximum emergency power. No German fighter could keep up with us. The Mustang with its weight and superb streamlining would leave any ME-109 or Focke-Wulf far behind at well over 400 miles per hour. The tactical rule was not always followed. We were happy with our reliable fighters. 
They had arrived in the early summer of 1943 to replace the less than satisfactory Curtis Tomahawks, 430 Squadron's original equipment. About the time I joined the unit at a tactical airstrip near Ashford in Kent in September 1943, the Mustang had satisfied everyone with its ruggedness, reliability, and comforting high speed. The only disappointments were its lack of dogfighting maneuverability and its inability to operate effectively at high altitudes. It was a big, impressive fighter, a much larger machine than the Spitfires of the day. Painted in the dark greens of RAF camouflage and polished with loving care, the Mustang One was a sleek, beautiful airplane. 430 Squadron and its complement of some 20 pilots spent the winter at Gatwick Airport, just south of London on the London to Brighton railway line. Gatwick was a flying challenge for us and our fighter aircraft because the airfield had no runways, only rolling green turf. Taking off was always a series of lurches across the undulating ground of what in pre-war days had been a racetrack. By remarkably good accidental planning, our standard RAF billets had been placed within a two-minute walk of the Gatwick railway station, through which the electric trains of the Brighton line either thundered at full speed or, conveniently for us, ground to a halt to take on or disgorge passengers. Happily, there were many trains to carry us to and from London. Victoria Station was only a little over half an hour away, and beyond it, after a short taxi ride, the delights and challenges of Piccadilly Circus, the Regent Palace Hotel, and the Chamois Club on Denham Street. Here's where Romer talks about his first operation, just a few short pages afterwards. It was from Gatwick that I did my first operation over France. It was a photo reconnaissance mission in early December 1943, four long months after I joined the squadron at Ashford. The reason for the delay had nothing to do with my flying ability, it was my appearance. I was slight, thin, and had the face of a 16-year-old. I looked so young the squadron commander took a protective, fatherly interest in me and could barely conceive of my being old enough to meet the threat of the deadly hun, but he finally relented. I survived my first trip as a nervous number two, ardently protecting the tail of my leader as the pair of us roared across the channel just above the waves to avoid radar detection, and then pulled up to a lofty 5,000 feet altitude to cross the French coast, find our target, photograph it, and hair back to the welcoming shores of Mother England. If my youthful visage gave pause to my squadron commander, it was to stop General Patton in his tracks, although by the time I met Old Blood and Guts on 8th of May 1944, I had many missions under my belt and was rapidly becoming an experienced hand on the squadron. And of course, having turned 20 the previous January, I was feeling much older and far more confident, even though I still looked 16. After the grey winter at Gatwick, the squadron moved back into tents at the Royal Air Force Base at Odoham. There we joined two other Canadian units, 400 Squadron with its Bluebird high-level photography, unarmed reconnaissance Spitfires, and 414 Squadron, which was also a Mustang fighter reconnaissance unit. Our three Canadian squadrons were the operational arm of the 39 Recce Wing. Once the invasion started, it was designated to work with the British Army as its reconnaissance and photographic eyes. 35 Recce Wing, our Royal Air Force counterpart, was to work with the Canadian Army. The Machiavellian twist of cross-ethnic fertilization was attributed to General Montgomery himself, the legendary leader for whom we could be performing all manner of dedicated services. In the spring of 1944, someone at Supreme Headquarters realized that, unless the people fighting the battle on the ground had some opportunity to have a prior look at the close support aircraft that would be working with them in battle, they might well confuse them with the enemy. 
This was particularly so with the Mustang, which had an uncanny resemblance to the German ME109. In fact, it was so similar that I can well recall being attacked over Holland in late 1944 by 12 American silver Mustang 4s, who must have thought that because we had camouflage paint on our aircraft and a birdcage hood like the 109s, that we were, in fact, Germans. Probably to this day, the American pilots who descended upon us from above like a group of famished hawks still grind their teeth when they think of those two Messerschmitts that got away from them by nipping into the nearest cloud. Thank God there was one close by. The thing that I find most interesting about this book is that it is about reconnaissance. And a lot of Air Force books I find typically focus on the you know, the classics. You know, we, we talked about George Burling um, just a, a few months ago when we were looking at his, his experience as a fighter pilot over Malta. And obviously that's great and it's fascinating to hear about dogfighting and all these amazing things or even uh, Murray Peden, we talked about bombers and his role as a bomber pilot. But none of these operations, and especially for, for bombers, are possible without reconnaissance aircraft. And Romer's description of this throughout the book, I think, is really integral to understanding how the Air Force really operates in the war. Because if you don't understand reconnaissance, you don't understand how they find their targets. And these next two accounts that I'm going to talk about are really interesting for that, and they show just how vital their role is. So I'm going to read that for you here now. This first one is on the no-ball sites uh, from page 36 to 42. Our task on the 13th of May was straightforward. The briefing officer informed us that there were three no-ball sites at Saint-Omer that we were to photograph. The targets had been bombed by Boston's earlier in the day. Our photographs would enable the APIS, the Army Photographic Interpretation Section, people to assess the damage, if any. As usual, there was no word as to what kind of an installation the no-ball site was, and we didn't ask. The squadron had been doing no-ball missions for several weeks and in large number, but at no time were any of us informed what it was the bombers were trying so hard to destroy and we to photograph. However, the pictures we took showed us that at each no-ball site there had been built or partially completed what looked like a section of roadway about 100 yards long and about 20 feet wide. At one end of this roadway there was a slight crook off to the side making the whole installation look like a hockey stick with a shortened blade. In addition, there were new buildings erected in each construction area. Another clue was that the no-ball targets were concentrated in the Pas-de-Calais area, close to the Channel coastline. If it had been my job to interpret the photographs as well as take them, I would have also been able to see that the handle ends of the hockey sticks were pointed towards London. One characteristic all of us were able to observe about the no-ball sites was that the Germans built them almost exclusively in wooded areas, in orchards, forests, and copses of trees. It was as if they were trying to hide what they were building, without knowing that it was impossible to conceal them from the prying, all-seeing eyes of our cameras and those of our high-altitude bluebird spitfires. The routine for these missions was relatively straightforward. Prendergast, as the assigned leader, and I went over the maps on which our route access to France had been plotted. We discussed the direction of his run in on the target. He would fly at 7,000 feet directly above the no-ball site. His aircraft would be straight and level so his vertical camera would be pointed at the objective. All three no-balls were close together and caught in one photo. 
To fly straight and level at the relatively low altitude made one a sitting duck if the area was protected by flak, especially by the deadly accurate German 88mm anti-aircraft gun. The fire direction mechanisms on the 88s were such that the shells invariably exploded at our exact height. Even if they didn't hit you, they would come close enough to scare the hell out of you with their big black exploding clouds of lethal metal. Prendergast aircraft was rigged with an 8-inch vertical camera. Its small size dictated that the height at which he had to take his photographs. My aircraft was equipped with a 14-inch oblique camera, installed just behind the cockpit, pointing out to the left and slightly behind the tailing edge of the wing. I would have to be about 200 yards off Prendergast's right so I could keep a protective eye on his tail to make sure we were not taken by surprise by any enemy fighters. Then just as he was completing his run directly over the target, I would put my left wing down and fly my aircraft so the oblique camera would be pointed at the target, just long enough to get a fast series of pictures. Our briefing and final discussion as to routes and operating procedures takes place in the large 39 recce wing operations tent at our base at RAF Station Odaham. We leave it and walk to our squadron's operations tent not far away to collect our helmets, goggles, gloves, and parachutes, which we drape over our right shoulders to carry them out to the airplanes. Once there, the parachute, helmet, and goggles are put on, and we climb into our respective aircraft. Prendergast is in Mustang N, and I'm in L. Those large identification figures are on each side of the fuselage between the cockpit and the tail section. With the assistance of our ground crews, we strap ourselves into the bucket seats and start our engines. On go all the switches, including radio. I check its operation by talking with Prendergast, whose aircraft is sitting three places away from mine in the line, its prop turning over. When the engine temperatures are up, another radio check and we taxi out onto the east-west Odem runway. I follow a few yards behind Prendergast, each of us turning his aircraft from side to side so he can see ahead beyond the big, blinding nose of the Mustang. We stop for a final takeoff power run-up check. Takeoff clearance comes from the controller's hut. A green Aldis beacon pointed at us, brilliant even in daylight, says go. We line up on the runway in formation. Prendergast is on the left. I have my left wing tip tucked in just behind his right for a close formation takeoff the kind every fighter pilot likes to do. His right hand comes up, palm inward towards his face. He moves it forward and back twice, the signal to begin takeoff. We start to roll. In a few seconds, we are airborne. An automatic reach with the left hand for the undercarriage level pulls it to the up position. I watch Prendergast wheels coming up and feel mine lock into place. I wait for the hand signal to lift the 15 degrees of flaps we have to put down before takeoff. It comes. I move the flap selector to up. I can see his flaps lifting until they are flush with the wing and clean. My wing tip is still tucked inside his as we turn west, climbing. It is 16.01 hours. Prendergast straightens out on his south-southeast course, giving me the hand signal to go into battle formation. Immediately I pull out to the right, settling in about 200 yards away from him. I will maintain that station during the entire operation, either 200 yards to the right or 200 yards to the left, depending upon the turns that have to be made. However, on the target run, I must be on his right. At 3,000 feet, we level off, headed for Selsley Bill, the great peninsula on the south coast of England towards its eastern end. It is an excellent landmark for departures across the channel and conversely an ideal low-level landfall on the way back down. As we approach Selsley Bill, Prendergast starts to descend. 
Down to the deck we go as we leave the land and hurtle across the channel just above the waves to avoid radar detection. I now activate my guns by turning the gun selector switch to all. The two gun charger levers are pulled fully out and I am ready to fire if need be, using the illuminated gun sight just above the instrument panel directly ahead of me. By this time we have started our watching procedures for we can be attacked by enemy fighters at any moment. I check my station position with Prendergast's aircraft. I sweep my vision behind him, then forward in a clockwise motion, ahead and around in an arc back and behind to the right. My eyes search the horizon. Next I turn my head slowly to the left rear behind the lead Mustang. And so the procedure is repeated constantly with regular checks into the rear view mirror just above my head. It covers the blind spot that the Mustang 1 has to the rear because of its enclosed birdcage hood. Nothing is seen. Radio silence is maintained as an operational necessity. About five miles from the French coast, Prendergast lifts the nose of his aircraft, and we begin to climb, planning to cross the coast at 7,000 feet with a landfall at Quanplag. What is left of the regularly attacked German radar system will now pick us up on their screens. An alert will be given to the anti-aircraft batteries in our path, and the German fighter squadrons in the area will be notified. Whether they elect to respond remains to be seen. We cross the coast at 5,000 feet, still climbing. We are in the lair of the German Eagle. My head is really swiveling as I read every section of the sky for a sign of enemy fighters. In addition to keeping a sharp lookout, Prendergast is also doing the navigating and map reading. He must get us to the target and back. In a few minutes, he is on the radio to me. No need for silence now. Letting me know that the target is straight ahead at 12 o'clock. He'll be starting his photo run in about three minutes. There are no clouds below us and above only high scattered cirrus. A beautiful day and therefore a dangerous one for us. We can be easily seen by high-flying enemy fighters. At 7,000 feet, we're beyond the best operating height of the Mustang, so if we are attacked, we are at a greater disadvantage than usual. The next hazard is flak. Will the target be protected by 88s? If so, we're going to be in for a rough ride, especially Prendergast, who has to remain absolutely straight and level when he's taking his photographs. But there would be no flinching by Prendergast, whose reputation for coolness and determination has been solidly earned. As for me, I can weave and bob and still maintain my battle formation station and take my oblique photographs. The moment of truth is at hand. Now the targets are one mile ahead. We are set for the run-in. Because there is no window in the floor, you cannot see vertically down in the Mustang, so you must line up your aircraft using predetermined landmarks on each side of the target. Following those, you then know without question that you're going to be putting the camera carrying vehicle, your airplane, right over the target. So after he is sure he is lined up, Prendergast cannot see the no-ball sights, but off to the side I can. There they are in a copse of trees, the peculiar hockey stick form gleaming white in their sheltering woods. The bombs that had been aimed at the sights had been carved enormous holes in the countryside, all around the copses. At one no-ball, a string had landed across the stubby blade at the end of the stick. Whether it had been damaged or not, I cannot tell at this moment. Prendergast is into his photographic run. I'm getting set to take my obliques just after he has passed directly over the target. It is now or never for the 88s. Prendergast is over the target. Still no 88s. Now it's my turn. Taking the airplane over its left side with my top right rudder, I bring the no-ball sights into the direct line of my camera by matching the targets with the camera aiming mark on the trailing edge of the, my left wing. When I'm sure I have them, 
I press the operating button on my control column. In my earphones, I hear the electrical clicking each time the camera snaps a photo. After a few seconds, I pull the aircraft level and check my position in relation to Prendergast. I've come a little closer to him, so pull out to the full 200-yard battle formation. No flak. He decides to go back for another run going westbound and so advises me. After a double crossover turn of 180 degrees, we complete a second run over the targets. Still all is quiet. Nevertheless, it is time to get the hell out of there. Rubbernecking for enemy fighters, we hightail for the coast, dropping down to wave level as soon as we hit the channel. We double check our IFF, identification friend or foe transmitters, to make sure they're functioning. We want the radar operators in England to know that we are indeed friendly. As we approach the welcoming contours of Selsley Bill, we climb up again to 3,000 feet and go through the procedures of putting our guns on safe. At Odaham, I do a stream, staying well back from Prendergast aircraft, rather than a formation landing. We're back on the ground at 17.30 hours, one hour and a half to France and back. As we carry our parachutes and gear back to our squadron operations tent, we talk about the trip. It appears to have been completed successfully. Naturally, we are both relieved that we got away with it without flak or fighters. At the 39 Recce Wing operations tent, we are debriefed by the same intelligence officer who had briefed us. In the middle of his session, we are informed that for Prendergast, the trip has been for naught. His vertical camera had not functioned as a result of an electrical failure. All that way and such high risk for nothing, unless my photographs had turned out. They had. So our sortie was successful and well worth the effort. On the night of Ju 12th of June, we were to find out just how important the no-ball sites really were and why it was so vital that they be destroyed. Our photograph reconnaissance was equally important since it was the only way intelligence knew whether or not the no-ball targets had been destroyed, merely damaged, or completely missed. Romer has a way of making this mission seem so intense, which obviously it was, but I think so many readers are used to reading stories of combat in high intensity and suspense. And I think, weirdly enough, this still has that. Just there's not as much of the combat experience as you'd expect. But it doesn't make these reconnaissance missions any less important or any less suspenseful. It's very clear that they were. And Richard Romer flew over 135 of these missions. And it's quite amazing how much suspense he can put into the text. And I find that really, really fascinating. I wanted to read an extended section on Normandy, however, this first section that I did read ended up taking a little bit longer than I had expected it to, and I think it's quite fascinating and it does a great job of detailing everything that Richard Romer and reconnaissance pilots more generally have to do in their their day-to-day -day duties. And so I think that's fascinating for that reason, but I do want to just read his description of seeing the um, invasion fleet uh, on D-Day, which is quite fascinating. And then I want to talk about one more thing before the end of the episode. All six of us were quietly wakened in our tents at 3 a.m. We dressed quickly and without taking time to wash or shave, hurried to the mess tent. Our fabulous chef, Stradiotti, personally appeared to produce eggs, bacon, and coffee for us. After breakfast, it was over to the wing operations tent to be briefed on our operations. The two sections ahead of us took off in the darkness shortly after 5 a.m. Both returned a few minutes after 0700. We were airborne at 0600 just before sunup, and as the record shows, 
Taylor and I were the only people from 430 Squadron to be over the beaches at each hour. In the semi-darkness, we did a stream rather than formation takeoff. As soon as I was airborne, I began to turn to the left in order to place my aircraft inside of Taylor's banking to port, about half a mile ahead of me. That way I could catch up with him quickly as our paths crossed. He was already in a gentle arc in the same direction toward a course that would take us south to exit the coast just to the east of Portsmouth. As I caught up with him, crossed under and moved out of my comfortable battle formation, positioned 200 yards to his right, and just slightly behind, the darkness was fast disappearing. But that day, the sun was invisible, obliterated by a solid blanket of high grey cloud that looked to me to be sitting above us at perhaps 10,000 feet. We knew the wind was strong, close to 20 miles per hour from the west. It wouldn't affect us, but it would undoubtedly play havoc with the men crossing the channel in big ships and small. As we approached the crossing out point on the south coast, the sight that lay before us was awesome. As far as the eye could see, the sea was covered with ships, in a vast miles-wide unending column, reaching south to the horizon, plowing through white-capped waves towards the Normandy shore. Ships coming in from ports to the east or to the west of Portsmouth converged on the column about 10 miles south of the coast. Even I could judge that when we were flying over the largest armada that had ever sailed on any waters. While we could still not see the French coastline, we knew that the head of its incredibly enormous force of ships was sitting off the invasion beaches, its mighty battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and other assault craft spewing thousands of shells and rockets onto predetermined targets in the final minutes before H-hour. While I was constantly checking the sky for enemy aircraft and occasionally catching glimpses of allied fighter squadrons in the distance, it was impossible to keep my eyes off the amazing sight below us. The water was thick with ships rolling in the heavy seas, some of them towing protective barrage balloons to stave off low-level enemy aircraft attacks. From my vantage point, everything appeared shaded by the diffused light filtering through the heavy overcast above us. Even the white caps had turned gray. The bobbing ships painted in their myriad patterns of dark blending colors gave off a common grayness only slightly contrasted against the uninviting blackness of the wind-whipped channel waters carrying them. This is the afterword added onto the book later on in 1986. I was not aware of my involvement in the catching of Rommel until 1985 when I began researching my novel, Rommel and Patton, which was published in 1986. In order to write the first half of the story in which Field Marshal Edwin Rommel is the main character, I had to conduct a considerable amount of research on his activities from before D-Day through to the point at which he was taken out of the Battle of Normandy on 17th of July, 1944. On that day, Rommel was visiting Lieutenant General Sepp Dietrich, his Panzer Corps commander in Normandy, at the commander's headquarters in a field at St. pierre sous southeast of Caen. Rommel had come to the front to show his troops that while their brave leader was not afraid to be with them, and sh to raise morale. While with Dietrich shortly before 1600, Rommel received word that General Omar Bradley had opened an attack in strength in the St. Lowe area. Rommel immediately decided that he had to get back to his headquarters on the Seine so he could run the battle. Dietrich tried to persuade him not to leave because the Jabos, the Allied fighters, were everywhere. But Rommel was undeterred and began the journey back to his own headquarters at La Roche-Guillon on the Seine River, a long driving distance away. He got into the passenger seat on the right-hand side 
front of his huge horse staff car, where he always rode so that he could map read. In the battle area at that time, it was crucial for the Germans to have an experienced map reader in the vehicle so that a car could take side roads if necessary. At the wheel was the field marshal's regular driver, Corporal Daniel. In the back were three members of Rommel's staff. The top of the car was down in order to allow the occupants to watch out for the dreaded Jabos. Rommel's staff car left St. Pierre de Soudives heading east for Livarot at about 1600. The car turned south on a side road just west of Livarot. After a few kilometers, it turned east for a short distance and south on a highway between Livarot and Vimoutier. Then, at the village of Montgomery Saint Foy, Rommel's car was shot up by two Canadian Spitfires that attacked from the north. The driver, Corporal Daniel, was hit by a cannon shell and killed instantly. The horch went out of control, hit his tree stump at speed, and turned on its side, throwing out the field marshal and the three men in the back. They were not injured, but Rommel was within an inch of his life. He had been looking back over his right shoulder watching the aircraft come in. When the car hit the stump, his head hit the windscreen post. The point of impact of head to post occurred just above his left eye, an effect caving in his skull. The unconscious Rommel was taken to a pharmacy in a nearby village where he was given morphine. After the treatment, he was still unconscious and barely alive. He was then taken to a Luftwaffe hospital at Bernay, several kilometers to the east. Rommel recovered from the accident, but in October met his death at the hands of two of Hitler's generals. As I read through the research material at my farm near Creemore, Ontario, I asked myself what I was doing that day. I found the answer in my copy of the huge logbook of my unit, 430 Squadron of the Royal Canadian Air Force. I'd obtained it when visiting the squadron, its members now fly helicopters, at Canadian Forces Base Valcartier in 1976 when I was commander of the Air Reserve Group. My own logbook for that period had been destroyed by enemy action when 430 Squadron moved in September 1944 north of Evreux, west of Paris, France, to a base in Belgium, so the only record I had was the squadrons. I turned to the entry for July 17th, which appears at the beginning of this afterward. The entry says, one staff car going south. Immediately, my memory of that day returned, and I could picture clearly that huge staff car traveling south from Livarot on the side road just to the west of Livarot-Vumetier Highway. I had been at about 1,500 feet leading a section of four Mustangs when I came across this impressive vehicle. I could tell that there were brass on the car because the sun glinted off their caps and uniforms, but I had no idea at the time that I was looking down on Field Marshal Rommel. About 10 days before I found the staff car, the higher command of the Air Force in Normandy had decided that it would be foolish to continue to allow highly trained, specialized reconnaissance pilots and their heavily armed Mustangs to shoot up targets of opportunity. The rationale was that it would be inappropriate to allow us to place ourselves at even greater risk by attacking staff cars, armored vehicles, tanks, or other such targets of opportunity. And believe me, a staff car was a juicy target. When the order came down, the Mustang pilots of 414 and 430 squadrons were furious, but we had to follow orders. Thus, when I spotted Rommel's horch, I could not attack. I called Group Control Center, GCC, a central VHF radio location behind our lines that monitored the location of Spitfires, Typhoons, Mustangs, and all other Allied aircraft in the Canadian-British sector. The GCC controller kept in touch with the various units in the area on different frequencies. After one final look at the car, which was still traveling at speed, Rommel knew that Mustangs, or the Bloodhounds, would not attack. 
I reported the exact location of the car to the GCC controller. I turned my flight of four back west towards our base at Bayeux. I had no contact at the time with the leader of the two Spitfires that shot up Rommel's car. Indeed, none of the Mustang pilots knew what really had happened to Rommel. Goebbels announced two weeks after the event that Rommel had been severely injured in an automobile accident, not a shoot-up. During my entire tour of operations covering 135 missions, the vehicle I saw on 17th of July was the only staff car I encountered. But one doubt remained as to whether this was truly Rommel's car. The logbook indicates that I caught the car at about 1707. However, the staff car had left Dietrich's headquarters about 1600, and it had traveled only 9 kilometers. Surely it wouldn't have taken an hour to travel that short distance. The timing was off. While spending a few days puzzling over the time difference, I was certain that I had encountered Rommel's car. Sure enough, during further research, I discovered that the Canadian and British forces were operating on double British summertime, which was one hour ahead of European time, on which the Germans were operating. So in fact, I did catch Rommel shortly after 1600 hours. I did not shoot up Rommel's car, but clearly I had a large role in taking him out of the Battle of Normandy in World War II. By October 1944, he had been sufficiently recovered from his head injury that he was fit enough to be able to return to command. But as I mentioned earlier, that was not to be. By November of 1944, Romer completed 135 combat mission tours of operation after having served in the liberation of Belgium, the Netherlands, and France. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his successful reconnaissance missions in the summer of 1944, but the totality of his awards did not stop there. Romer was further presented with the Order of Military Merit, the Order of Canada, the Order of Leopold in Belgium, and the Legion of Honor in France, as well as countless others. After the war, he continued with the Air Force, attaining in 1978 the rank of Major General, Chief of Reserves of the Canadian Armed Forces. Canada's most decorated citizen, Romer left the armed forces in 1981. Romer has been active in a range of legal, corporate, and military activities throughout his life, and as mentioned before, he's a prolific fiction and nonfiction writer. He was also the chairman of the 60th anniversary of D-Day celebrations, which took place in the presence of the Queen, who he personally escorted at the Juno Beach Center on June 6th, 2004. Patton's Gap is a really interesting book, and it was a very fascinating read for me personally, because it really upends everything else from an autobiographical standpoint. It's very clear throughout his writing that he's a prolific writer. Um, everything is very polished in the book, and his accounts of the historical record mixed with his autobiographical accounts is just striking. I really, really enjoyed reading this book. And like I said, it's very different from the others that we've talked about in this series, and I highly recommend picking it up. I'd also recommend checking out the countless videos and speeches that Richard Romer has given over the years. Most of them are available on YouTube, and his ability to recount events and to talk about his role is quite amazing, and I, I very much recommend checking that out. 
So if you haven't already, pick up a copy of Patton's Gap, Mustangs Over Normandy by Major General Richard Romer, who is 98 years old and may hear this. We've had a couple of those um, so far this series, um, including Mr. George McDonnell. Uh, it's been quite striking to see that so many of these uh, veterans are, are still around and we're able to still hear their stories. And I think that alone is, is quite fascinating. So thank you to Mr. Romer for writing such an excellent book. And until next time, Witnesses to History, thank you so much for listening. My name is Keegan Gingrich, and we will speak to you sometime soon. Take care.